Hi, I'm Sharon Heal, and I'm presenting this episode of the Space Invaders podcast. In my day job, I'm the director of the Museums Association, but I'm doing this podcast as part of the Space Invaders campaign to claim equal space for women and non-binary people in museums. We want equal power and influence, particularly at leadership level, and we are also campaigning for fair working conditions that meet our needs and for a greater focus for women's stories in collections and displays. Space Invaders is part of a UK-wide group of activists working in museums. So far, we've brought together hundreds of people to talk about how to create change. If you want to find out more, search online and on social media for Museum Space Invaders. I'm delighted that today my guest is Laura Van Brokhoven, who's the director of the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. She previously led the curatorial department of the National Museum of World Cultures in the Netherlands, sits on the Museums Association's Decolonisation Guidance Working Group and is a member of the Women Leaders in Museums Network. Laura, welcome to the Space Invaders podcast. Thank you, Sharon. Yeah, it's a real uh, honour to be um, on the podcast and to be talking to you is a pleasure, obviously. So it's really quite nice to be able to chat again. So normally we'd be doing this hopefully live in Oxford and I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to get back out into the world. So I suppose my first question would be, how's the pandemic been for you? Yeah, the pandemic is, um, yeah, I was just sort of thinking this morning, we had a, one of those webinars where 200 people were in the room where we would normally have a maximum of 60 because of our you know, fire security regulations, etc. And it's wonderful to have all those people. And at the same time, I just miss the sense of the sort of buzz in the room togetherness, the physicality of just sort of, you know, glancing across a space. And so that is, I think, as a museum director, I am extremely proud how much, you know, the museum has still been in the public eye, still been able to deliver against our values and our mission. But I do miss having people in the museum and being surrounded by objects. And yeah, so, um, and then on a personal level, I suppose it meant that I've spent a huge amount more time with my husband than I would normally do because he travels back and forth to the Netherlands every week in normal times to teach there. But because of all the, so that's been really nice. The kids have been at home a lot more, but I do hugely miss being able to go and see my parents my family friends because there is a whole network across the channel which has now been cut off by you know both brexit and the pandemic <laughs> sort of... yes yeah, so that's a really interesting point isn't it that you know how do we as leaders as women leaders as feminists capture some of the benefits and advantages of around work-life balance and how do we think about flexible working and ways of working in the future? And I'm sort of interested in thinking about sharing what that looks like further in practice. How do we enact feminist solidarity? How do we support each other in the workplace, in museums, in, in the wider sector? What I most missed when I came to live here was my friends, my girlfriends, <laughs> my sisterhood, which, um, you know, one obviously can, you know, you know get together over phones and, and etc. But it's just not the same as actually being able to be in each other's vicinity, have a good moan at times, or finding support for each other and making sure that you're there to just show compassion, kindness. I think 
has been really important. Sometimes also share a rant with each other and that can be over a phone or elsewhere. But I think it's it's those networks and, and it can you know, sometimes it's just listening, sometimes it's talking, sometimes something that has troubled you. But um, I think that having those spaces where we can come together, think through together and learn from each other's experiences are extremely important. Um, but just coming back to that idea of um, of what you what you see as a contrast between the UK and your work internationally, you've been here for in post for for more than five years now. You came to the Pit Rivers from outside of the UK. I, I'd be really interested in hearing your reflections on the UK museum sector and and gender in museums in general and how that plays out does it is it is it any different in the netherlands to here or are there similarities yeah so in the netherlands i had a different role because i wasn't a director of the museum but i worked in three museums across three museums i know that i didn't apply for the job also because i thought they're not going to be looking for someone who didn't study in the uk and didn't study in oxford and i think i'm sure that many of the answers that i give or that i gave um, and have given will have startle people, there's a certain sort of bluntness or openness, sometimes also a certain harshness to the way that the Dutch will sort of formulate our ideas, possibly also to be very explicit about my politics can be shocking for certain environments. I think the other thing that I found really quite challenging at the, in the beginning is that I came from a space where people trusted me a hundred percent. They knew that what I would say was exactly what I would do. I don't play tricks on people. I'm part of an open book. And then to come into a place that actually there was zero trust. So one of the things that I think I did, which was very typically Dutch, where it, the sort of all these established hierarchies are not so well established as they are in the UK. One of the things that I did what probably ruptured the sort of more patriarchal, hierarchical structures was that I was listening to everyone. And so one of the things, the first things that I did is, is invite everybody to come into my office and have a, a talk for about an hour. Everyone, this is from the cleaners to the you know, management team. And I didn't start with the management team. And that was something that they felt very sort of shocked by because what was I doing? Why wasn't I first you know, sort of hierarchically working through the organization? And I continue to do that. I have an ear to the organization. I, you know, I have these sort of um, drop-in sessions with the director where anybody can come. It doesn't always work very well because people sometimes just come to, you know, sort of propose a great project, but I can't say yes to that because it would need to be agreed with the line manager. But it was certainly something that sort of, actually, there was quite a bit of anger, raising of voices, people really sort of bursting out of meetings of management teams, um, upset because of the way that I was and the way that I was leading. So I think that is something that on the one hand, I needed to learn how things could be phrased differently so that they wouldn't cause so much distress. And on the other hand, it was just going to be that the way that I would lead would be different from what people were used to. So I think that is where I hope that there is much more of a, of a sort of democratic feel to the organization, the way we restructured certain sort of committees, for example. But yeah, in the beginning, I think it certainly did feel like coming from, you know, even though we're so close to each other, right? I mean, it's just the channel that you have to cross. Coming from the Netherlands into the 
UK and then Oxford in particular felt like, yeah, I was sort of coming to a 3D game of chess and I was playing it blindfolded and I had no clue about the rules. So, yeah. Wow, that's really interesting and insightful. And I think that point about hierarchies, you've got two hierarchies at play there, haven't you? You've got the museum and the collection, which creates its own siloed hierarchies. And then you've got academia on top. So it must be really daunting to come into that in some ways, but also with a fresh pair of eyes and a different cultural background and ways of doing things, you can be disruptive and you can say, you know, we're not going to do things in the way that we normally have here we're going to try different methodologies and a lot of that to me sounds like what I would call feminist leadership you know being open listening and um, would you describe your leadership style as, as a feminist or how would you describe yourself as a leader so I recently added feminist to my twitter handle because I thought yeah actually I, I absolutely am a feminist and for, for me feminism is about you know obviously it's, it's a sort of intersectional feminism it's about you know rupturing the patriarchy and hierarchies and it's about equality and equal rights and yeah to me i am a feminist and i actually obviously it's crazy that we need to have these conversations and it's nonsense that we still have to argue those points constantly because there should be space and room for different ways of leadership and especially for more female sort of you know compassion and kindness led but also sort of vision visionary led leadership which is goes back to sort of values of being open and honest and collaborative um i think all of those different aspects it's crazy that i have to talk to my 14 year old and say that i need to argue uh, for female rights but we still do need to because there's so much yeah either you know in small things like being interrupted in meetings but also the sort of more silent subtle hierarchies where i know that i need to make sure that a male director will say what i been saying all along just to make sure that it is going to actually resonate with a certain part of the sector or I know that I have to try and make sure that the way that I'm formulating things has enough Britishness to it for it to actually be able to be heard so that I can say instead of saying well no I don't agree with that which would be what I would have said in the Netherlands here I would say you know might we think of this otherwise and then so so there's sort of these more softer kinder I think also ways of formulating things which I I really enjoy about working in and that I've learned a little bit more about sort of in the UK also in how to you know, use language in ways that it's not just going to be rupture to rupture, but it's actually going to be rupture to change. That's really interesting. I think there must be something culturally in common with the Netherlands and Yorkshire, because I think there's something about coming from the north of England and Yorkshire that makes you quite blunt and direct in ways of speaking and trying to influence. And I have had to modify and in some ways self-censor to a degree to get things done because not everybody responds to that and that is okay you know people learn and behave in, in different ways but I think some of it you know is um 
it, it, it's a it's a way of kind of reinforcing hierarchies that we you know we do things in this way we work in this way because that's the way we always have and obviously those hierarchies reflect and support men more than they do women so that's that's a, a, probably something that we have in common that we have to modify our language and, and behavior in some situations in order to influence change in the way that we want to see it and I suppose for you coming into an institution like the Pitt Rivers which is the kind of museum of museums so not only do you have the hierarchy of the academic institution you're in Oxford the heart of the academic world and you've got the hierarchy and the the weight of the collection but you've got this idea of the museum of the museum. So how did you sort of go about making the, the, the quite radical change that you've enacted at Pitt Rivers? Yeah, so I think what, what I really wanted to do from the start is to make sure that the whole organisation was sort of somehow coming along and shaping that change also, because we started out you know, in over the summer of 2016, I joined in March. The, at the time, there was also the Rosemouth Fall Movement that was very active in, in Oxford. And I, I had come from a moment in the Netherlands where we were working really closely already for five years or so with the decolonized, hashtag decolonize the museum movement. And it sort of felt like, okay, there's a lot happening here on many levels. And obviously Oxford is on the one hand, yeah, there's this, this place that has where, where leaders grow up, one could say, especially those who come to govern you know, the country. But it's also that place which is, has the, you know, some of the brightest minds from across the globe who are supposed to feel you know, as that Oxford is a home away from home. It's also constructing knowledge on a constant basis. So in that sense, it sort of felt like there is that appetite for change. It's certainly, I knew, and that's why I came to the Peter Rivers Museum, that there were several people in the museum also who were very sort of, you know, already changing the sector and and, and the many different levels on which the, the Peter Rivers Museum, even though it's quite small, it often uh, sort of, it, it does punch above its weight. And I think the, the how I try to approach it is to make sure that we were thinking together. Obviously, that you know led to certain ruptures and certain sort of uh, me not knowing exactly what the role of you know consultation and committees were, and all of that sort of needed to sort of find and, and it, its place and settle a little bit. But once I was able to have spoken to the whole organisation, I then started a sort of strategic planning process. And that strategic planning process was sort of mainly with sort of the the, the management and deputy managers bringing all of those in the room, but also making sure there were moments where we were checking in with the whole organization. There was this feeling, I think, where everybody was like, okay, so if we do nothing, that is not really what we want. So we do want to see change. That's when we started crafting the sort of what kind of change would look what, what would change look like and also to really i did go into the annual reports of the organization and it was really clear that change is always even though we have that aura of the museum of the museum change has always been a constant in the bitterverse museum so in that sense it wasn't as if we were you know completely rupturing no we're building on work that has happened over you know century and uh, and a bit also in, I, I went into some of the writing of the general because i thought it was important to make sure that we we are acknowledging our founder and and looking at you know sort of what role would 
does his thinking and his ideas still play in the contemporary and he was very much a change maker that was what he was all about so not obviously the change that we're making now but some of his writing sort of emboldened the idea that okay this is you know that there is um, both a need for this but this is also the museum where you can actually make change happen we have these students who are you know sort of wonderfully challenging us there is a great body of professors who were also you know completely happy to engage and that, that, that was one of the networks i became part of and i'm now the co-chair of, of the oxford and colonialism network where there, it was clear there was a whole huge amount of people in Oxford that were radical thinkers and, and radical change makers and brilliant minds. And I'm very often stunned with you know, to complete silence with all these people in, in the room because there's so much sort of eloquence in the room. So, so yeah, I think that is where it was clear that the, the change was possible, that we wanted to make it happen. And then also to instill in everyone that they're part of the process of change. And I think that is where some of my staff even sort of saying after a year or so saying, you know, once the shackles were off and we were allowed to actually just sort of do the work and develop that work, we were able to do so many different things. And so I think that is where um, that's what I've seen. It's not me making the change happen. It's it's the whole organization. And the only thing that I would like to see still happening a little bit more is that people would acknowledge each other's contributions to the change happening. So I think a lot of our, we, we're in a place where lots of people are very proud of what they're doing. Some of them can see that others are also doing a huge amount, but I would love to see that we come to this place where everybody sees we're all doing at different levels in the organization, making that change happen. Still a lot to be done, uh, but yeah, it's, um, it's quite exciting. It's really exciting. I, I, I think, you know, that is an attribute of feminist leadership is to acknowledge where others are making change and to support others to make change. It's absolutely critical to do that. And I was really struck by what you said about knowing the history of the institution and re researching and digging into the recent and, and the, the past history of the institution. Mark O'Neill, who led Glasgow Museums and is, I think, a great museum thinker and doer, often talks about the tradition and history of and creation of museums in the UK. And if you go back to that, then you can see that many museums in the UK were created for public good, for public use. And we sometimes kind of skip over that part of our own history. And it's, it's really important to, 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 to look into that and to, and to research it and to understand it. And um, can I just ask you a question about intersectionality? Now, I know that that can sort of sound like jargon and not everybody understands what it is, but I know that that's part of what you champion and practice in, in, at the Pitt Rivers. So can you talk about what that actually looks like in, in practice for, for, for what you're doing there? Yeah, so I think what we really try to do is to make sure that we're not by sort of focusing on feminism, that we're not ignoring that there's all kinds of exclusionary practices that actually intersect with that feminism. So but that we actually sort of look at, okay, so there's lots of unhelpful binaries that are being put sort of, you know, in on 
on us and on top of society and sort of that are actually not helping us with working together or understanding both the collections that we curate and or concepts that we sort of think through, but actually are obstructing that understanding. And I think there's binaries, there's boundaries that are put in place. There is, um, and it's acknowledging that there's sort of different privileges or lack of privileges, different parts of the organization were sort of bringing up those elements of the work that we also needed doing. Our whole museum is steeped in colonialism. There's a whole range of issues there that we needed to make sure that we were really tackling much more, but not just in the collections, but also in the behaviors that had seeped into the organization. And I think Oxford is starting to tackle that more and more and becoming a bit more aware of it, but it has it's it's been students who've had to start you know, really pounding the doors, much like for other issues, it's been indigenous communities who've been sort of, you know, really pounding the doors and saying, we need to have access, this needs to change. I think it was on the one hand, the organization and the museum itself, but also the you know, actors, lots of agency of different communities around us that are demanding that change. And, and that sounds fantastic. And I know that people listening to the, this podcast will think that's brilliant. That's the kind of thing that I want to do in my institution. But people also encounter resistance to that kind of change. And I'm sure you did, at least in the early days, if not ongoing. So how, how, what advice would you give to people on or how did you get around that resistance and those blocks? Because I, I came in very naively sort of thinking, okay, yes, everyone's going to be on board with this. And I was very lucky to have had people in the Netherlands. Uh, one of my, um, so Ada, she was uh, one of the people of the project bureau. She had told me, Laura, you have to bring people along because right now the way you came in in the beginning, it was like Luther. You had your commandment, you sort of pinned them on the door and everybody just had to follow because it was naturally the thing that everybody needed to do. And I had to put my horizon of change and, and how change would happen and how it would come gradually much further away and I think now I'm sort of quite conscious that this is going to take you know the, the, not just me and but 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 uh, lots of people's careers um revolving around the, the, the amount of change and, and and to accept that change is a constant that needs to happen but I think the sort of bringing along our staff has been a mix of on the one hand because there's this there's this element around do, doing the work of decoloniality where Sometimes people oppose it to the work that is joyful or that has to do with beauty or the, the, the work that is sort of bringing fun things into. Well, for me, it's the work that we need to do to actually allow for everyone to feel that it's a fun place to be in. Someone's joy and fun doesn't come at the expense of someone else's having to be hurting and, and not cared for and actually not even feel welcome. So I think that is what we always, what I always try to bring into the conversation. Also, when people are saying, you know, I need more, like, we can't be doing this heavy work the whole time, which is true. And it doesn't need to be heavy. It can be joyful. It's about looking at it from the different angles, from this sort of, you know, pluriversal you know, worldviews that there's so many different ways of doing this work. So that's where I think, you know, making sure that we can not see it as 
we have to do this work and it's really heavy, but actually to say, if we can do it through music, if we can do it through food, if we can do it through, there's so many different ways of doing this joyfully. That is what we're doing this for. I think it did need some new people coming into the museum. It certainly needs some of our staff like Ashley and Antigone and, and Scarlett and Megan, who've been leading the uh, anti-racism program, uh, which is a sort of staff well-being network that they've set up. So one of the things that became quite clear at a certain point of time is that there was quite a bit of harassment and bullying going on in the museum. And obviously I noticed some of that when I came in because there was so much sort of people actually even you know, shouting at each other. And, but there was also a lot of sort of people not, they were suffering in silence. They were not flagging it up. So we set up a whole program around, you know, sort of awareness training. We set up many more uh, harassment and bullying advisors and people that people could go talk to. And so I think that was one of the things that we, we needed to somehow see how we could root that out or at least make it a lot more that a place where people could feel they could bring up those topics and they could actually challenge those topics. You may be aware that as the Museums Association, we've done a piece of research with others on bullying in the sector in general. So we've got a report on our website called Sticks and Stones and we're doing some follow on research around cyber and online bullying because that I think is becoming much more prevalent. And I know, you know, some of the conversations around contested heritage have created quite a toxic atmosphere for many in the sector and in particular actually some women leaders uh, so it would be useful if you if you feel you could reflect on the impact of that and how to deal with the trolling and you know calls for resignation etc that have, have been you know that are becoming rife I think on social media. For me, it's been mostly since we announced the news that the shrunken heads were taken off display, that Sansa and all of our human remains were taken off display. And that's when there was, you know, about 55 letters of people who were really angry, um, writing to myself, uh, some of them calling for my resignation, uh, many sort of I don't know, belittling the work that we were doing. Well, actually, a lot of that work, you know, I, I'm completely behind that work because I know that we did it very rigorously, methodically. We've done the work to a level that I know we can write academic articles about this week. You know, we're seen as, you know, sort of sector leading on the one hand. So there's a lot of it that sort of balances it out. But the sort of, you know, some of those letters obviously are you know they do trouble one most of those were directed at me there were some uh, that were directed at some of our other staff members and i think what was mostly difficult for our for several of the staff was the amount that was put on social media and especially on on facebook the sort of comments that were being made belittling them, belittling, uh, saying that we were destroying the museum, that you know change shouldn't be done in the Pit Rivers Museum. Other feedback comes from indigenous communities or comes from you know, people who are involved in the decolonizing movements where they're saying, you're not being you know, fast enough, you're not being deep enough, your change, you're just you know, paying lip service or you're just being tokenistic. So I think that is, there's a lot of you know, critique that one needs to be willing to take in. And I think some of the critique is really about sort of listening to it, seeing whether, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a sense to it. And 
I think that is what we've tried to do to both of them. So on the one hand, there's a critique of the students where we've invited them in to come in and, and um, be part of the conversation and challenge and that we're open to those challenges. There's the critique that comes from Indigenous people where we need to make sure that we're making changes where we need to make them by taking off display certain objects or returning certain objects. And then there's a critique of the people who are really troubled by the change. So I decided to not react immediately, but I've been very lucky with a student from Goldsmith, Angela Billings, who's working with me on analyzing what people were writing. So she's taken, you know, sort of both the feedback on social media, on Facebook in particular, the feedback on Twitter, and uh, we're analyzing on the one hand what those networks are of people, because it's actually mostly 10 people or so who are being very sort of, you know, upset and uh, very loud and very emotional about their reactions to to what we're doing. A lot of the sort of words that are being used is quite racist and quite problematic, actually, very much tied into BLM and, and sort of the you know, Black Lives Matter movement, the sort of things that they uh, refer to as, you know, sort of that we're bowing to or that we are taking the knee or in, as if that's a negative thing. And then there's other aspects of the work that we did is to really sort of, for me, to look at what is it that people are really so troubled by? And that was in the letters mostly because there people have taken the time to write me a letter personally. Some of it was just, you know, people lashing out, but some of it was also that people are, you know, there's these concerns about, you know, history being erased. And, and so I wrote a, a letter back to um, all of those people, uh, but I took five months to listen and see whether, you know, because um, sometimes it's difficult to listen to things that you think, you know, this is just, wrong in in so many ways or i'm having difficulty listening to this because i can you know, I've, I've i've really considered so many different aspects around this that i do feel that even though you feel hurting because you feel some of your youth has been sort of taken away from you because that's what you used to or, or you can't bring your grandchildren to the museum anymore i still feel that you know if your pleasure comes at the cost of someone else's pain then I can't see how that is you know, truly pleasurable. And so that's where we need to sort of see how we balance those things out and, and, and still continue to continue the conversation. I don't want to sort of say, I'm not going to talk to you because you're not of my opinion. But at the same time, we are going to continue to be a place that is welcoming to all and be therefore an anti-racist and non-binary space there are shades of the feedback let's call it that you get when you chart a course such as the one that you have I think quite often when it's condensed and is on social media and when it's directed against women it can very quickly become personal and patronizing and the thing to do one of the things to do I think is to step back from that and realize that actually it's politically motivated in many many cases um, and to understand the sort of rationale behind some of the vitriol that some of us have, have faced on social media and to stand aside from that and, and take the time off and away from some of that abuse so that was just really fascinating, Lara. Is there just any final thoughts on the future and you know where you see the Pitt Rivers and, and where you see issues around gender and decolonization and anti-racism going forward? 
Yeah, so I think that we are going to certainly continue the work that we're doing, uh, intensified also, but mostly thanks to the work that we've been doing, you know, during the, the lockdowns, we've been able to reach communities that we weren't in contact with yet. And I think that is where uh, some of those communities are indigenous communities and they're thinking uh, with us around how do we become you know, places that actually are caring places that caring as in how do we become a place that actually people want to relate to and be part of because they know that they are going to be listened to and they're going to be part of the shaping of decision making and i think that is where i do feel and the same goes for our communities across oxford who have really become more and more involved in you know how do we shape the museum what is it to them Obviously, there's a sort of nervousness on the one hand around where are the limitations to what we can do. It is a great one listed building. Uh, there's also the atmosphere of the museum is great one listed. There's a nervousness of some people that we're going to rip it all apart. And I find it so, um, you know, a, a bit troubling at times, the, the way that people tend to think of this as loss or destruction or sort of erasures well actually what we're doing and that's what makes me so happy is that we're making space for other stories for more narratives we're making space for more um historically accurate uh, tellings of history um and we're making or making space for other possible possibles and i think that this idea of other possible possibles in a space like the pit rivers museum without having to destroy it we don't need to at all but we can actually you know interrogate it use it as a space for conversations use it as a place where new objects we're working with communities in hawaii in um, uh, hokkaido japan in uh, australia in new zealand so in that sense there's this positivity and joy in being able to work together they're thinking about what new objects do we want to make that in, in, so that we can help shape the museum differently so in that sense there's a huge amount of work that we can do and um, i'm really pleased that i'm part of this part of the life of the museum that's a fantastic place to end this podcast on a note of joy on a note of creating space for possible possibles and pit rivers is going to be my number one destination as a museum when we get out of this so you've been listening to the space invaders podcast a collaboration produced by the space invaders campaign this episode was presented by me sharon heel and produced by lucy harland you can find out more about our campaign by searching for museum space invaders or follow us on twitter at m space invaders that's m for museums thanks for listening <laughs>